0: The subject is the Day of the Lord for today, and we have to consider several factors about the Day of the Lord. This uh, overhead will give you a few ideas about what we're dealing with. These various passages of Scripture I will take up at a a point later, but the the overall concepts of the Day of the Lord in terms of when it starts and when it stops— are important in our discussion of eschatology. Um, The day of the Lord is a time of real terror. The day of the Lord is a time of excitement, of terror. And so we have this artistic presentation of people in pain and looking for the coming of the Lord. And then we also look at the desolation of Isaiah 13 as it relates to the problem. Uh, You see on page 268, Dr. Cook's discussion in the cookbook here, uh, the analysis of the Day of the Lord and the character of the Day of the Lord is a time of trouble and difficulty and as well as the Lord being exalted, there are a number of factors that you can express with regard to the Day of the Lord as you read through Scripture and gather all of the data. The subject is the Day of the Lord for today and we have to consider several factors about the Day of the Lord. This uh, overhead will give you a few ideas about what we're dealing with. These various passages of Scripture I will take up at a, a point later, but the, the overall concepts of the Day of the Lord in terms of when it starts and when it stops are important in our discussion of eschatology. Uh, the Day of the Lord is a time of real terror. The Day of the Lord is a time of excitement, of terror. And so we have this artistic presentation of people In pain and looking for the coming of the Lord and then we also look at the desolation of Isaiah 13 as it relates to the problem Uh, you see on page 268 dr. Cook's discussion in the cookbook here um, the analysis of the day of the Lord and the character of the day of the Lord is a time of trouble and difficulty and as well as the Lord being exalted. There are a number of factors that you can express with regard to the day of the Lord as you read through Scripture and gather all of the data. The principal difficulties that we find with the study of the day of the Lord have to do with the termini or the ends, the beginning, the end at the beginning, and the end at the end, so to speak. Uh, terminus ad quem. The letter A here under number three means the end or goal. Quem is ad quem, our Latin words. Uh, The end uh, consummation is the idea. And if you want to compare what Pentecost, Dwight Pentecost in his book, Things to Come, he is on pages 552 and 553 in discussing this. And the end of the day of the Lord seems to come at the end of the millennium. That is to say, what is to come are seven years of great tribulation, followed by a thousand years of peace. As someone said, the millennium is a thousand years of peace that the church has been fighting about for 2,000 years. Uh, uh, But the thousand years of the rule and reign of Christ on the earth then culminated with the day of God. So the day of the Lord begins sometime... Uh, In the eschatological period and concludes at the end of the millennium and just exactly when it begins Is a key question now on page 269 dr. Cook has several Data uh, given to us regarding the beginning of the day and he notes correctly The beginning of the day is not definitely fixed in scripture, but there are certain events that describe surrounding things. And I diverge somewhat with what Dr. Cook has written here, and I will speak to those points in, in just a moment. But you do notice several factors here. First of all, it will come suddenly, as 1 Thessalonians 5:2 says, you know accurately or perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief. That is, suddenly and unexpectedly. Uh, I had a uh, pistol for sale the other day, and I put an ad in the paper and i had several people call and always when i sell a firearm i never i never have anybody come to my house i always meet them someplace the corner parking lot or behind the saloon or something like that uh, inasmuch as as i don't care to have people who read the newspaper n- know where i live and if they figure i've got one to sell i might have another one someplace and they'd have a hard time finding it because i've got it hidden but uh anyway my wife i got home late saturday i refereed five football and five basketball games saturday morning and then went fishing all afternoon that shows you what kind of shape i'm in and by the time i got home i wasn't in any kind of shape at all and she said oh there's some people coming to look at that pistol i said no you shouldn't have told them where we live (laughs) but at any rate they showed up uh, at about the time that uh, they were expected to come the lord's day will come suddenly as a thief not by appointment but if somebody comes to steal something from your house, they're going to come at a time when you don't expect them, and the suddenness and unexpectedness is implied in this 1 Thessalonians 5.2. Uh, and then 1 Thessalonians 5.3, whenever they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Now, Gundry tries to argue, I think very ineffectively, saying they say peace and safety, but that doesn't mean that it's there. Well... I have a hard time with that kind of uh, sophistry. Uh, When I refer to Gundry in this discussion, I'm referring to Robert Gundry's book, The Church and the Tribulation, that he wrote several years ago. Are you required to read that for this class? Oh, how sad. Well, anyway, uh, it's a post-tribulation dispensational approach to the uh, rapture of the church and i think it's wrong in a number of cases and this is just one of those he he says that it's not a time of safety they just say it is well that's really reading the scripture in a different way from the way i would read it and then dr cook notes believers of this age will not be present when it does come and he distinguishes between the you and the them and the they and i think accurately so I am trying to represent this properly in the commentary I'm currently writing on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. But then he speaks in number 4 of the falling away must come first, and we'll talk about this 2nd 2 Thessalonians 2.3 passage. The man of lawlessness must be revealed, 2nd 2 Thessalonians 2.3, and the restrainer must be taken out of the way, 2nd 2 Thessalonians 2.7. And all of these 2nd Thess passages revolve around a problem with the term proton and uh, the Greek word first, and we'll deal with that just in a moment. So, Dr. Cook, I think, accurately summarizes, saying, in the light of these facts, two things become clear. The day cannot begin before the rapture of the church, and it cannot begin after the beginning of the great tribulation, which is when the man of lawlessness will be revealed. So, remember then, in general, that the day of the Lord is not 24 hours. It's not one day full of events as I had Saturday. I got up early, refereed basketball, went fishing, didn't catch any, came home, cleaned up, sold my pistol, ate my supper, and went to bed tired. Uh, I had a lot of activities on Saturday. Uh, The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period when a number of things take place, but rather it is a season and as I suggest, it probably lasts from the beginning of the tribulation, the beginning of that seven-year period of time, to the culmination of the millennium. So 1,007 plus years is the day of the Lord. Uh, now I want to talk about the difficulties that we face in when it begins specifically. There are two key passages that, uh, well, actually, I should say there are several key passages that come into this, and I showed them uh, just a moment earlier, uh, the references. We've got a passage in Joel 2, and I'd like to have you turn there with me first to Joel 2. Now, the camera's going to be on you to see who can't find it, and... We're going to put that at close range. Joel chapter 2. If you have the same Bible I do, it's on page 863. Now the passage begins in verse 1. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. So obviously it hasn't arrived yet, but he's describing. It's a day of darkness and gloom. Now he's defining what the day is like a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, their like has never been from of old, who will not be after the, again after them through all the years of generations, and so forth, all of these sounds of and signs of war, and so forth. And then in verse 10, a very important text, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. So there are celestial events of great moment. Now, keep going down to the end of the chapter, or towards the end, that we get down to, um, I'll get here, no wonder I can't find it, I'm in chapter (laughs) 3. Verse 30, I will give portents in the heavens and on the earth, portents, signs, signals in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke, then the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now, I wondered about that for years as I read that. Turn back with me to... uh, Oh, it's it's not on here. Oh, yes, it is. Isaiah 13. Isaiah chapter 13. Keep your thumb in Joel 2 there. Or your finger, whichever you prefer. And turn back to Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 6 and following. Whale, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, every man's heart will melt, they will be amazed, dismayed, pain and agony will seize them, they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. That is to have a child, they will look aghast at one another, their faces will be aflame. Now here specifically, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the earth a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of the heavens and their consolations will not give the constellations will not give their light, the sun will be dark at its rising, the moon will not shed its light, and so forth. In other words, signs in the heavens and that's the key point point. and I said now wait a minute these signs in the heavens in Isaiah 13 take place during the day of the Lord and back over here in Joel 2 the first signs that he says take place during the day of the Lord when he begins to describe the day of the Lord verse 10 and following and then you get down at verse 30 and he says I will give these signs in the heavens and so forth the moon and the sun dark and turn to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now, there have been several responses to this. Uh, in attempting to resolve the conflict uh, between Joel 2 and Isaiah, and uh, just, just in passing, the Malachi 4, 5 passage deals with the coming of Elijah. It says Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And in both of those passages, Joel 2 and Malachi 4, you have the same Hebrew construction, lifne, bull. The preposition, the inseparable preposition, lif with the, or the the la with the... uh, uh, Boy, that doesn't work too good, does it? (laughs) I wonder how it works over here. I'll see if I can remember... uh, Oops. Uh, Lift, nay, bow. I think it's this way, instead of that way. Before comes, and this is the key word here. The term bow. Uh, that we will take a time discussing. So there have been several efforts to interpret this and to understand what's going on. Pentecost in his book, Things to Come, and Dr. Ellison in his book, The Biography of a Great Planet, both attempt to resolve it by saying that these events of the darkening of the sun, the moon, and the stars take place during the day even though the passage says before the day of the Lord comes, they say they take place during the day because it's before the day of the Lord ends. You see what they're saying? So the day of the Lord begins here, goes on through there, and they're saying sometime during the day these events take place. And the writer is saying before the day of the Lord comes simply to say that these things take place before everything happens in the day of the Lord. Now, Gundry, i uh, got a quote by him here that I want to read just so we get it straight. What is the sense in saying that something happened Monday morning happened before Monday because it happened before Monday afternoon? You get the point? Would we also want to say that the second coming will occur before the day of the Lord because it will occur before the millennial phase of that day? Now, I think he's got a a proper point. Can we honestly say that Lifne bo before the day of the Lord, means before all of the events of the day of the Lord and still can mean before the day of the Lord, simply because it's before the day of the Lord is finished? Uh, another effort has been made to bring these things together by MacLean in his Greatness of the Kingdom. And MacLean suggests that there are several different things that take place during the day, including preliminary events. And so he will place these as preliminary events and then various events during the day. And then, of course, the essence of the day... He he says the day of the Lord is like a Hebrew day. When does the Hebrew day begin? Midnight, or or before midnight in the evening. So it starts with the darkness and goes to light. And he's saying that the day of the Lord begins with judgment and goes on through to joy in the millennial reign. I don't have any problem with that. But what he is saying is he will place these lifnebo words in both Joel 2 and Malachi 4 as saying, yes, these are true events. So you've got at least two things, signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and the appearance of Elijah. But then these signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, they also take place during the day. So you've got events taking place before the day as well as during the day that are essentially the same. Now, perhaps uh, an astronomer, I don't know if anybody here has studied astronomy in that branch of science would would find something in these passages to say, boy, if the sun is turned to darkness and the moon to blood, the stars not giving their light and so forth, that sounds pretty permanent. sounds like it'll take some great events to resolve those unless there's some volcanic ash or some atomic mist, atomic uh, darkness or whatever that takes place to obscure them. How can it take place a couple of times? Well, I did uh, quite a little bit of work on this, and I would like to just respond to these events as well as to Gundry. Gundry is going to say, for instance, that uh, the best way to understand this is to see the tribulation taking place, and then the Lord returning at the conclusion of this seven-year period of tribulation. And this, then, is the day of the Lord. That is the millennium. So, he finds that the, the day of the Lord cannot begin until the Lord returns, as a post-tribulational beginning to the day of the Lord, the day of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh So, there are three views, then. The view of McLean, that there are signs before the day of the Lord begins, as well as signs during the day. The view of Pentecost and Ellison that say, no, these signs are all during the day of the Lord, during this period of tribulation. But the Scripture says before the day of the Lord comes, because it means that it is before the day of the Lord is completely finished. And... Then there's my view. <laughs> That's a little different. Uh, I'm trying to piggyback onto what Ellison and Pentecost have said because I believe it's proper that the day of the Lord uh, that we see the day of the Lord is beginning with the rapture, and we relate to that in basically two ways. First of all, lift nay What does lift nay mean? Before comes or whatever. Well, lifne bull can be understood as another possibility because the word bull is more like our English word travel than it is like our English word come. Now, remember that in going from one language to another, there is seldom a, a one-to-one equation. Very seldom happens. The Greek word logos, we say, well, that means word but Lagos has a lot of other things that it means besides word. It may mean thing or item or discourse, a number of different possibilities, and usage determines, context determines the meaning. And when we come to a word like bow, it can mean come or go. That is to say it does not necessarily have to mean arriving or getting here. It can mean finishing. Now, how can I say that? Well, let me give you some evidence for that. For instance, Brown, Driver, and Briggs in their, Greek, in their Hebrew lexicon have a lengthy section section on the Hebrew verb bow, among which meanings they describe as come in, come, go in, go, or of entering on official duty... Of the sun to set. Now turn with me to Genesis fifteen, twelve. Genesis fifteen and verse twelve. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and lo, a dread and great darkness fell upon him. As the sun was going. Well, the context determines that it must mean going in terms of setting rather than coming because of the darkness that takes place. And, of course, deep sleep. Folks in those days didn't stay up all night watching the late show. They went to bed when it was dark and got up when it was light. And then over in verse 17, When the sun had gone down, when the sun had set, it was dark, and behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming uh, torch. Then in chapter 28 and verse 11 of Genesis have the same sort of construction. Genesis 28 and verse 11. He came to a certain place, Jacob, that is, stayed there that night because the sun had set. He stayed there that night, obviously, when, he, when you read about Shemesh, the sun, Bo, Going It's not the sun coming because it was night. So obviously it's gone, it's set. And there are several other passages that they give where with the term bow, it refers to the sun, shemesh, ha-shemesh, setting. And so if we understand the Hebrew verb bow as meaning travel rather than go or come, then we can say, okay, traveling can mean either going or coming depending on context. The Greek verb erkamai, as you know, is the same kind of concept. It means I can go, or it, mean, it can mean I go, or it can mean I come, depending on the setting in which you find it. So we say the first point we're trying to make here with this term bow, this Hebrew verb, is it does not require the meaning uh, come in any kind of an antecedent sort of way. It can mean the term go or finish. And is also, Brown, Driver, and Briggs note that the term, the verb bow, is also used of the harvest. When the harvest comes in or is gathered. Now, when you look at harvest being gathered, what are you looking at? The end of the events of harvest. Years ago, I went out with a friend of mine in eastern Oregon to go steelhead fishing. And he said, well, I can't leave too early. I've got to feed my cattle, and I can't do that till it gets light. So it was wintertime. It was towards uh, the end of November, about a week before Thanksgiving. And we got out and got in his truck, and I helped him feed his cattle for about a half an hour. And about 9 o'clock, we started off to go steelhead fishing. And as we bounced over the back roads, we're heading out to the breaks of the John Day River, to hike in, he was saying, all I've got to do now until spring is feed my cattle once a day and hunt and fish. Boy, I'll tell you, I felt the Lord calling me to the ministry of farming right then. Um, And he was not going to be able to get into the field to plow until sometime late in March or early April. So he had quite a little while to just fool around. All his machinery was fixed and patched and greased and in the shops and so forth. Everything was ready for what he was going to do that spring. But uh, the, uh, the concept of, of going out that kind of day uh, meant everything was finished now. The season was over. If he said, my harvest is in, I have harvested my wheat, it's finished. And so the use of bow in harvesting has to do with the end of the process. Now, during harvest, they may go two, three weeks, 12, 15 hours a day, working hard, Breakdowns, got to run to the dowels and buy parts and get home and overhaul engines and all kinds of stuff to keep everything going. When the wheat is ready to be harvested, they want to get it in so they can quit and go fishing, right? Uh, So the end result, the concept of bow. So in those two significant ways, depending on context... The term bow may mean uh, the end result of travel, going, rather than the beginning, coming. Uh, now, to find a use of the word day, yom, as we have it in Joel, was difficult with the verb bow. However, in Ezekiel twenty-one, twenty-five, and 29, the text indicates your day has come and the term yom, day, with the verb bow is used there. And you might say, well, what that means is your day has arrived. That's possible, but may also mean in the other end of the thing your day is finished. The time of judgment is over. Your time of opportunity has already taken place. Now the ax is going to fall. Your day has come. So, I think it's certainly possible that we understand this bow in a little different way than has been the usual way now you say how many translations do it that way none how many commentaries have it that way none how many journals want to print your article that you wrote none (laughs) 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 maybe because i take such a different view i don't know the day of the lord includes a number of events. The day of the Lord does not have signs that happened before. You see, I see a basic con conflict there with some views, such as the view of McLean and others who will say, No, you've got these darkness things and so forth. At this point then I say, All right, now how is it that Paul can say, in First Thessalonians five, it comes like a thief? if there are these signs in the heavens with the sun and the moon and the stars having these celestial events that are terrible, and if Elijah comes before the day begins, then how is it coming as a thief? I don't have an answer for that. So I I can't buy McLean's view that you've got events that happen ahead of the day and events that happen during the day. On the other hand, I cannot buy uh, Pentecost and Ellison's view that say it happens before the day of the Lord comes because uh, it happens before the day of the Lord ends and still translate Bo as before the great and terrible the day of the Lord comes. So I tried to work out some kind of a middle road and the best of all possible worlds. I think it's certainly acceptable exegetically and lexically. And contextually, I think it's the best position to say that these things happen during the day and what Joel is saying and what Malachi is saying in these two important passages is these things, Elijah will come, uh, Malachi 4 5, before the day of the Lord goes, finishes like the harvest, or finishes, sets like the sun. And I think that's exactly what Joel is saying, as you work through his context, he has the day of the Lord already in full force, and then you get down to verse 30, and all of a sudden he's got things happening before the day of the Lord comes. Now, I realize prophecy is difficult, but why does he do that kind of a somersault on us? It seems to me that if you read Joel 2 as starting and progressing, and then take Joel 2.30 and 31 as a summary... and read that as before the great and terrible the day of the Lord finishes or goes, then it works out very well. And furthermore, then it fits with the description of the events during the day of the Lord that you have in Isaiah 13. Otherwise, you either have a conflict or it seems like you have to play kind of a double shuffle game uh, with the text in saying, and I think that, th- that that's the problem that I have with, with Pentecost and Ellison. So... The term bow, I believe, can be understood as go, as the day finishing, like it does with the sun setting, rather than before the day starts. Question? Yeah, how do you um, put Acts chapter 2, Peter's use of Joel 2, in, into the picture of the day of the Lord? Well, uh, that's another question, of course, what we have in Acts 2. I, let's turn there just for a moment, and I'll show you the way off the hook. Uh <laughs> that I use, and I think that it's, it's accurate. Uh, verse 13, or 16, excuse me, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And your, your version may say, this is that spoken by Joel. Now the question is, is Peter saying that what they have observed is a fulfillment of all of these events of Joel? Or is he quoting Joel and going to use part of that to indicate that what has in fact happened is a scriptural experience? I think that when he says, this is what was spoken by Joel, he's simply introducing a quote. He is not trying to interpret the events of the day of Pentecost as a fulfillment of all of these things that he quotes from the book of Joel. He is simply saying, Joel says, quote, now, you say that this is drunkenness. The only thing that could, could be a reason for these men speaking as they're speaking and so forth could be drunkenness. I'm going to tell you, no, there's a biblical reason that could be given. Remember what Joel said. Joel said this and that and so forth. And actually, when he gets down to the pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh, that's the only thing there that truly applies completely the sons and daughters prophesying, old men seeing vision, young men dreaming dreams. Obviously, you have prophecy taking place, but seeing of visions and dreaming of dreams is not part of the Pentecostal event that takes place here. And so I, I see that he's simply quoting a wider context and zeroing in and so when he says this is that spoken by Joel, he's not saying these events are precisely fulfilling what Joel has said in the whole, the wider context that he quotes from Joel. I think he just zeroes in on which was a common rabbinical practice. Uh, many preachers do exactly the same thing. They read a paragraph and preach on a sentence. I often do that. I've got a comic dictionary at home and says the definition of a preacher is one who preaches from a text, usually far from it. Uh, we, try, <laughs> we try not to do that. But uh, it, nevertheless, is common practice, and so, as I say, I believe what he zeroes in on here is the pouring out of the Spirit and the prophesying, but not the events of the heavens and so forth and so on. Yes, sir? Um, you don't think that the, the quotation he has relates to verse 22? He Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs? You don't think those have any relationship well, there's there's certainly a relationship, but essentially what he's talking about is the pouring out of the spirit at this point. And so he's saying that the pouring out of the spirit of God will bring remarkable events. Don't think that it's only natural from wine. It is supernatural from the work of the spirit. But I, I think that the the question has to do mainly with the signs in the heavens. How are what are you going to do about these signs in the heavens? Does that are we going to spiritualize those and say those didn't really happen, and so forth. Uh, excuse me. Didn't they happen when he died? The sun turned, the, the sky turned dark, and everything else. For the space, space of three hours, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The moon turned into blood. No. It didn't it appear that way.
1: With I, was, an I would say no. I would
0: say three hours. It did not appear that way. For the, with the blood turned into the moon turned into blood. I think these events are during the Day of the Lord, and I don't believe the Day of the Lord began with the crucifixion of Christ. So you're not saying Peter got carried away in that quote? No, I'm not saying he got carried away at all. I'm just saying he used a common rabbinical practice that he extended the passage, gave the whole oracle. Uh, Years back, I was witnessing to a Jewish rabbi, and I asked him what he thought of Isaiah 7.14. And he said uh, he didn't know Isaiah 7.14 from uh, Ford Carr. I mean, my, my designation of Isaiah 7.14 was meaningless. He said, what is the oracle? And so I began quoting it, and he took it over, and he quoted the whole paragraph. But it was interesting. He left out the definite article. And I corrected him. How about that? This kid correcting a rabbi, right? He left out, ha, Alma, the virgin. He just said Alma. And uh, we began to have a little conversation about that, which he began to pull away from pretty quick, uh, but that's that's a that's a rabbinical idea that you quote the whole passage and you will do that often when you preach. Do you have to preach every point of the whole passage that you read? No. You want to give the setting. Make sure that they identify the whole passage and zero in on the pertinent points. That's what I think he's doing. Okay. Any other questions then on this lifnei bo? Yes. But in his before in verse 20 in Acts 2 um, can that grammatically stand in the Greek as before can we change that then to being after or during grammatically in Greek as opposed to because evidently he's quoting in the Greek it's hard to say Tim uh, whether he is in fact uh, giving Yeah, he's, the the thing is, you see, he's using erkemi, elthane. He's using an Arist active infinitive of erkemi, elthane, from elthon, elthane. Uh, the word is the same in Greek as it is in Hebrew, as I said earlier. Erkemi can mean I come or I go. And so all I'm saying is not that this verb means you know, I hit the ball out of the park or, or I eat my food or something, what I'm saying is that the term, if we understand the term both bow in Hebrew and erikomai in Greek as meaning basically travel, it's generally equivalent in English to the word travel. Well, travel can mean coming or going. And at this this point, then, we can do exactly the same thing here before the day, the great and terrible day of the Lord goes, because the... The word is indifferent as to what it means coming or going, depending upon context. Now, whether or not there is a case to be made in Greek for the use of the sun and erkamai, the sun going and setting, uh, I couldn't, couldn't find any, any tracks in that direction. Basically, I was looking at Old Testament usage for the Hebrew verb bow. But, but this Hebrew construct, this Greek construction, and Acts two uh, does not deny what we've said about the Hebrew text. It can mean exactly the same thing. So in the Septuagint, then it was probably translated over to Er-Kamai. Right. Same word. Right. Yes. Um, would your view then with Pentecost and Ellen only differ on the, the word bowl, but as far as the <laughs> actual events taking place? Yeah. What I'm sense? saying is, I explain it in the same way that these all event, uh, these all uh, all these events happen during the day of the Lord. I'm disagreeing with McLean, who says you've got preliminary events and then (coughs) constative events during the day. I'm also disagreeing with Gundry, who says the tribulation is not part of the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord cannot begin until... And so then you've got (laughs) a pretty quick uh, time frame. See, that's what I have a problem with, a post-tribulational schema here. That is to say that you've got to compress so many Old Testament passages and all of these events into such a short period of time of wrath and amazement of people and so forth and so on. All of this, I guess, while the Lord is descending, I don't know, just really they've been pretty uh, cautious about how they put all of these things together. But that's, I'm, I'm saying essentially the same view as Pentecost and Ellison have, except I am retranslating bow as go rather than come. And rather than saying he says it's before the day of the Lord comes because it's before the day of the Lord goes, I'm saying he is saying before the day of the Lord goes. That's a, a mild, modest change. And as I say, I think it's legitimate from the exegetical point. Yes, sir. And you're saying we don't know how long the day is? The day of the Lord, I believe, begins with the rapture and concludes with the end of the millennium. So I would give 1,007-plus years, whatever transitional period you have between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennium. That's, that's my view, and I'll talk just for a minute about the concept in Second Thessalonians. We'll have to deal with that here in a minute, too. Yes? The rapture obviously has to come first, and can we hazard a, a guess, if you want to say it this way, and say that these signs, because they are, are signs to warn and to, to show what's going on here would have to come early after the rapture, early in the day of the Lord, or would we say they're put back? They're put back later? Well, i that's a tough question, of course. We've got to put it together with what we read in Revelation. And it seems to me that the plagues and so forth that take place are down the road apiece. And I think probably most of these signs, these terrible, awesome signs and so forth, don't take place until the second half of the week. Some people... Uh, pre-tribs and so forth will start the Day of the Lord at the midpoint of the tribulation, which I don't have any real problems with. I, I just think because of what what uh, Second Thessalonians says, it's easier to find it uh, at the beginning with the rapture rather than at the middle. But I think most of these signs do take place at the middle. That the first three and a half years or so are comparatively peaceful, and don't really have the difficulties of the second three and a half. All right, same time, same station tomorrow.